Okay, yeah, I mean, what, what struck out with me is just, you know, everyone that has been a victim of this and all of the families, you know, that are still, you know, they, I mean, there's a lot of instances where we know kind of, kind of what happened, but there's still no real closure. If, if, you know, there's women that were murdered and nobody, you know, the, the, the suspect was never found, you know, they were just left open. And I mean, this to me is, is for them, you know, Welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all-Native-run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. Thank you for joining us on this episode. My name is Emily Washines, and co-hosts are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pewishy, and Lucy Smartlaw. Uh, we have three announcements today. Uh, after a 25-day search, Aaron Smith uh, from the Puyallup Nation was found. Uh, the statement from the uh, Puyallup Tribal Chairman and the Puyallup Police is it is a finding of loss and grief. Um, so he was not found alive, and we are just thinking of Aaron Garcia's family and the Puyallup Tribe at this time. Uh, we also have another announcement from uh, the Justice for Kaysera uh, Facebook page. One year ago, uh, Kaysera went missing and the family is still looking for information on this 18-year-old Crow woman's death. They are continuing to do awareness events from the time she went missing until the time the family was informed. So this will be going on um, throughout um, August and early part of September. Uh, you can follow that on Justice for Kaysera Facebook page. And the third uh, announcement is that Operation Lady Justice is going to have another virtual listening session. This will be on Monday, August 31st. So check their website for information about how to register or listen in. On Tuesday, September 8th, 2020, there will be Jordan Stevens in court. Um, as you know, we have a number of different uh, missing and murdered Indigenous peoples cases in the court system, and this one is actually concerning a, a tribal member, a female, uh, Atwai Minthorn. Uh, we aren't going to say her first name is customary to our practice to uh, not, uh, but obviously that will be brought up in this court case, and we're thinking of her family in this time and the difficulty um, that this brings up. Uh, and right before we uh, introduce our guest, we had our community consultant, who's also a co-host, Patsy, that really wanted us to give an intent for our episodes. So our intent today is to get insight on reporting true crime on the Yakima Reservation involving Yakima tribal members as victims and or suspects. And I'll turn it over to Patsy to introduce our guest. Uh, thank you, Emily. Um, Good day, everyone. It's good to be here with you. Uh, I just wanted to highlight the work that Phil Farolito has been doing uh, in our community. 
Phil graduated from Idaho State University with a double major in journalism and political science. And since 2000, he has been a reporter at the Yakima Herald Republic with several years he's reported on the Yakima Nation. He's currently reporting on public safety and government, primarily in Yakima County. And, um, and we've gotten to know Phil over the years. He lives here on the Yakima Reservation. His children went to school locally and Phil understands the value of living amongst the Yakima people and being a part of our culture. I what also what's important to mention about Phil is that, um, you know, that he's one of the few that lives on the reservation, but yet still works with the mainstream um, newspaper, the Yakima Herald. And so I think that's important to highlight. And so I, I wanna um, you know, go ahead and begin with a question that I have because of the reporting that he's done. He recognizes that we have major issues around safety, um, well-being and, and issues around violence. So. I, I just, the question I want to ask has to do with as community members, we want our communities to be safe and healthy, share your role as a reporter and how it supports the safety and well-being of our communities. Just looking back, you know, early on in, in, in my um, reporting on crime out here, that getting information is very hard um, at times. And um, oftentimes, and there's reasons for that because of the layer of jurisdictions. And oftentimes we're not being able to inform the public about something as soon as we can as a result. And I just believe that um, number one, being able to get information out quickly that's, that's tangible to help an investigation move along is important. You're, um, you're alerting the public of what's going on. But secondly is when there's problems in the system, there's breakdowns. We really need to focus and look at those so we can make the improvements so public safety can be improved. So yeah, just generally, I, I'm, I'm gonna help clarify the question just generally because over the years you've been reporting on the accommodation area. And so just really concerned about the safety and how your reporting contributes to addressing these issues in our community. I certainly hope my reporting would bring to light um, areas that can be improved so public safety can be improved. I mean, that, that's the whole goal, you know, is to how, how can we um, improve a community or how can we help uh, um, improve and increase public safety? Um, where here on the Yakima Reservation, you have you know a mix of jurisdictions, um, enforcement agencies that can be confusing. And um, my role as a reporter, the better I can uh, get information out to the public and get uh, in the reporting, help improve dialogue amongst agencies to formulate better plans. You know, the hope is in, in, in all to improve our quality of life. Yeah. I'm curious, you speak to those multiple jurisdictions. Um, are there variances in working with those jurisdictions that you're mentioning? There are, there are. Um, you know, when you're, when you're reporting on crime that happens, um, you'll be able to get so much information, you know, immediately, uh, hopefully. 
you know, basically kind of the basics of what happened, um, you know, and, and, and sometimes law enforcement won't give you everything because they don't want to um, provide too much information that may hinder their investigation. So, so that, that's the first thing you hear, you know, from every law enforcement agency is they're only going to give you so much. But the real breakdown in information that I have found over the years is when you're dealing with the federal law enforcement agency, the FBI. They give little next to nothing, and that's very hard. It's been a historical problem. Um, sometimes the county's pretty good. You press a little bit. They'll give you information. The city, your jurisdictions are good. Um, tribal can be difficult, and I think there's probably sovereignty issues there and, and historical problems. Um, so it's not always easy to get information from tribal police agencies. Um, and some of that, I think, is systemic from just working in conjunction with the federal government and the FBI. So following up with that, um walk our audience through the process to collect case information. Okay, that can be difficult. I mean, let's say, you know, when you, let's say you have an incident that goes down and we hear about it and it's, we hear about it over the scanner. Um, oftentimes as a reporter, we'll try to go out to the scene and gather as much information as we can there. Sometimes there'll be somebody there uh, at the scene that will give us just enough information if it was a shooting a stabbing or something like that. They'll give us kind of the thumb sketch of what's going on. Um, and then we go back to the office um, with what information we have. Sometimes I try to go knocking on doors and talk to folks that might be in the immediate area that may offer some sense of what happened, you know, or, or what they heard, you know, something to give it a little bit more of a perspective from that environment, the immediate environment. Um, and then after that, you know, we try to follow the case and to see if uh, an arrest has been made. If it's a serious violent crime, we'll follow with the law enforcement agency that takes the lead on it. Uh, and so from there, we're hoping that as, you know, they make a, a break in the case or if they make an arrest, we're following up, uh, trying to find out, you know, who, who was arrested. Um, and then, you know, we try to get the case number and follow it through the courts um, and to see, you know, what the resolve is in the end, if there was a prosecution, um, you know, what the sentence was and such. Do you want to hear about some of the difficulties in that? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, you know, that's the, the typical, what I just gave you was kind of the typical rundown of, of in general of a crime. On the reservation, it's not always that easy. Uh, take for instance, um, there was a recent homicide there where there was also a, an arson involved. And when I called to find out about, you know, what had exactly happened, first I called the deputies, the sheriff's office, because they, they tend to respond to a lot of calls out there. And they said that, you know, the FBI is taking the lead on it. So I knew right then and there, I'm going to get little to no information. The FBI has this policy that uh, they deny nor confirm any ongoing investigation. And for some reason, they have uh, a threshold, they say, that is, that is higher 
then um, you know state law enforcement and tribal law enforcement is uh, releasing information um, to protect the integrity of the case. Uh, we run into difficulties getting anything out in, in, until something has been charged and we wind up going into the federal system and finding that case that's been filed and then sometimes starting from there. Um, I've been successful a time or two at pressing, you know, the FBI for information. Oftentimes I have used examples of my past reporting and difficulties to say, basically, hey, look, you have a community out here that does not feel that the federal authorities are really making an effort down here. So the faith there is there's not a whole lot of faith. How do you assure faith in this community that has lost faith over the years if you don't talk to me, you know, and give me some insight that, yes, something happened and, yes, something is being done about it? That, that's, that's the most difficult thing I've experienced as a reporter down here is getting past that with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigations uh, on many cases. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back and, and give you a little bit of early reportings on the unsolved cases. Uh, at that time, uh, as a paper, as you know, in the way we reported it is we were looking at it. This was way before this uh, awesome movement that's occurring now from within that you women are a part of. Um, we would basically, we viewed those all as, which they were unsolved cases, uh, uh, mysterious murders, um, and uh, missing persons, you know, and most of them were women. And um, so when I first began looking at these, I couldn't get much of any information from the, from the FBI. And then what I did get wasn't clear. Like in the beginning, I went in and asked about the number of cases. And at that time I had found uh, that we had the Yakima Herald Republic had requested information uh, on the cases. And at that time, I think we had a running list of 13. Um, and that the list of those people who their either their remains were found or their you know their actual it was obvious that it was a homicide um, and then some of it was just skeletal remains so you know they remained mis you know mystery uh, others it was pretty obvious it was pretty violent terrible stuff that happened um, we had very little information. Uh, former reporters Dave Wasson and Greg Tuttle had uh, had foiled the federal government to get this information. And I remember getting a hold of what they got and I read through it and it was like this old, you know, dots matrix printout of, of, of these cases, but the briefings on them that what those two reporters were able to get were very short. Um, you know, maybe a few sentences or a paragraph and that's it. I don't know what hard evidence they had maybe stored away somewhere. Um, but I do know that when I began probing this again, looking back into it, um, and 
trying to get information about these cases, a status report. I got the impression that these cases were just something that kind of piled up and wound up in a corner somewhere full of dust. And after talking to some of the people on the ground, some of the family members, I got the impression that there was no real follow-up. You know, I, I, I've talked to several, several folks out here, a lot of them off the record for reasons that we can discuss a little bit later. And I, I think that you guys had mentioned some of this early on about the uh, a trust issue with law enforcement. And um, they had uh, told me how they were waiting for follow-up interviews or they were waiting to be interviewed by an FBI agent and it never happened. So, um, so I'm, I'm still kind of on the ground out here. I'm knocking on doors. I'm trying to talk to people and I'm, I'm trying to get whatever I can, uh, you know, information on these cases. And most of it was coming from just talking to family members. And, um, and I did talk to some of the tribal leaders at that time, some of the leaders in law enforcement. And, um, and it was, I had a really interesting conversation. I, I remember it clearly with Ross Soxihai, who at that time was the, he was a tribal council chairman. And he was reflecting back on his, times as a law enforcement officer with the Yakima Nation Police. And I believe he might have been chief at one time of the department. Uh, and I, I remember talking to him and looking at this list of 13, and then it's like, no, there's 16. And then we're having this discussion, and I'm saying, okay, 16. And he told me, no, there was much more than that. He said, there were, there were 32 cases that we were trying to get more information on, that, that, that we knew of dating back to the 70s. And he indicated there were probably more than that. And I went ahead and um, went back to the FBI, who at that time had told me that there was only one unsolved murder on the reservation. So I don't know if that was an officer with the, or an agent with the FBI at that time it was just looking at a snapshot window of that year. But then as the conversation continued, it went from one to two. And then finally it went to, yeah, we had as many as 32 cases that have gone cold or were unsolved, you know, between a span of time somewhere in the 70s through, through the time that I looked up to, which was about the early uh, years of the 90s, maybe 92, 93, I think was the last case that, had capped uh, a string of cases, which I think it's some believe there might've been the work of a serial killer at that time on the reservation. I know there was a lot of fear uh, about that. So getting the information, I mean, you know, we're looking at snippets of information that we have on maybe 13 cases. And then there was another case. Um, so there's 14, right? And, and, but we're talking about more than 30 cases you know, so that's, you know, we don't even know. Well, and I also um, just want to say and speak to that, that's as far as like identified females and the discussion hasn't even begun around or highlighted around, you know, our missing and murdered males, um, you know, and I think for me as a community member to hear you as a journalist to have all of this access issues, I could only imagine 
what it's like for our community members who are the missing, you know, um, who are loved ones of the missing and can't even get access to this information or, you know, have, are just waiting, you know, and I think um, that part is really a, a huge concern because how I would, I wouldn't even know where to begin as a, as a community member or a family member um, to begin to ask questions and how to start having those conversations. And so I'm kind of curious to also hear what would you suggest, you know, to people who are in these situations, like what is good information to ask? Are, you know, overall in your experiences, you know, what do you think is important for people to know and to be able to ask for themselves? I, I think I think one it is important to understand the the layers of jurisdiction to understand you know who who is going to take the lead on this case what's what's the probability of me um, understanding it enough to know which agency to go to like if it's a homicide and it's on tribal land it's trust then typically from what I've experienced in reporting in the past, and I don't know if it's always a hard and fast line, uh, but typically the FBI will take it. And that can be difficult getting information for me. But if it's a family member who wants to know about a case, I, I you know, one part of me wants to say, hey, you know, you may be able to have a discussion with the FBI uh, uh, investigators who are working on the case that um, maybe others won't be able to have because you're a family member and you may have, uh, you know, information that would be helpful to the case, but also, you know, the fact that you are a family member. But I'm not sure that that always plays out that way because I've talked to so many family members that said they never did get that opportunity. So it's, it's difficult, I, you know, um, if, it's, if it's a case that happened out in rural area of the reservation, let's say outside like Toppenish uh, and Wapato, which are, you know, municipalities on the reservation, um, then typically, but it's deeded land, right? Not, you know, land that's been taken out of trust and put on the county rolls, then typically the, uh, the sheriff's office will handle it. You know, if it's an incident that happened like within the city of Wapato or Toppenish, then the city police will handle it. However, oftentimes they do call on the Yakima County Sheriff's Office to assist and help. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's important is to, to understand those law enforcement agencies. Um, and if you had to call all, all of them, you know, to, to, to be able to do that and get some confirmation. Yakima Nation is also, first and foremost, patrol and cover the the reservation and they have a huge swath of land to cover and I've I've got to give them that I mean it's it's a lot there's the closed area there's uh, fish and game issues and everything uh, so it's it's a huge undertaking and you know if there's an incident that happens or a missing persons case the, the Yakima Nation police will probably take the lead on that um, and you know so and if and now with retrocession if it's a if it's an enrolled tribal member, they're going to probably take the lead on that case. Um, I would follow up call, you know, stay on it. Don't do not let it slip away. If you're not getting information, you've got to keep calling and keep pressing. Um, 
to, to let them know you're not going to go away. So Phil, you and I um, had actually first met back in 2010 timeframe um, along the banks of the White Salmon River, um, talking That's about right. the dam coming out. And, um, you know, I had heard there's this guy, Phil, that goes around and he asks tribal members questions, and then they come in the paper. Um, so, I mean, in rural areas, it's a very big thing, like, still to us to see newspapers and a lot of the articles that come out about our tribal members, you know, will try to do the rush to Safeway. And, you know, sometimes they're, you know, all sold out and we have to wait around a little bit. But, um, you know, in talking about that and thinking about, you know, when we first met, I didn't foresee 10 years later we would be talking about this issue um like this um but when we think about this aspect of extraction of resources right so water is an extraction of a resource when mm -hmm. we talk about the beginning of missing and murdered indigenous women especially to yakimas and how it began in this county you know in our first report of mmiw as yakima people to the united states um was in 1855 and um you know, we have a lot of people that tune in and uh, might not really be aware of this issue. They might not know, like, well, how am I supposed to report on that? As a student, maybe I want to do a PowerPoint. How am I supposed to talk about that? Um, especially if there's building awareness. So um, what I wanted to do is just kind of ask you, like, how long have you been aware of the issue of violence against natives? Um, did journalism school prepare you for this? No. Were you informed? <laughs> no, you're going to answer that one real quick. Yeah. Um, and then um, just, you know, I'm just interested. Tell me about, you know, this aspect of, of learning about this issue, reporting on it and covering it. I know that you're, um, you're, you know, you cover a lot more different topics now, but you're beginning and then really in the beginning parts that uh, Patsy wanted to cover and why it was important to her is, you know, seeing those images and these stories in our stores was a very big validating point is what we're hearing. Um, and maybe you haven't ever heard that, um, but for some of these MMIW families in those early days, you and uh, Yakima Herald Republic, uh, featuring that and covering that was a very big validating point. And so how do we grow this, uh, you know, both locally in the Northwest and nationwide? Okay, a couple of things. So I want to back up a little bit, and um, and you know you're right. When I met you, I had no idea that we'd be here today having this discussion. Um, at that time, though, I did know that there was a problem, and I did know that at least I felt that there was um, there just wasn't enough resources and and a sense of enough urgency um, to prioritize handling this with missing and murdered indigenous women here and other reservations um, that needed to be. There needed to be a, a greater sense, I think, of urgency, a greater sense of commitment, um, and, and, and that, um, you know, just the way everything had laid out, like you said, from the signing of the treaty and the promises and what was in the treaty and that negotiation, that agreement, there should be a greater priority here on the Yakima Reservation in law enforcement and in many other areas. Um, that's what I believe. And 
um, you know, it needs to improve. So when I first came out here to report, um, actually I was, I was uh, just floored with the culture and everything that was going on and the things that I was being exposed to at that time. Um, it was incredible. I was like, wow, you know, I was fascinated. I mean, I had not from a distance, but the, the way my life uh, began here on the Acoma Reservation was like, I was pretty much, I mean, most of the people that I spent my time around were native people, you know, Yakimas. Um, and, you know, I'd go to the office and then I was mostly around coworkers during that time. But when I'd come home, I was around native people. And um, so, you know, because of the community and everything and, 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 and experience in the longhouse and starting to learn about the culture. And then I'm, I'm, I'm at the same time, it was very fascinating. I, I just wanted to, like a sponge, I wanted to learn as much as I could. It was, it was, I was very interested in it. I could just feel it, you know. But then at the same time in the backdrop, there was this, um, you know, the issue with missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, but at that point, I didn't really have a sharp focus on it. That didn't begin to come into focus until the case back in 2005, when there was a, a woman that had went missing for a considerable amount of time. And then a year later, she was found in Sadis Creek. So, and at this point as a reporter, I had no idea of really looking at, you know, uh, the cold cases of missing women, missing and murdered women out here. Um, but when that case uh, came about, I think Davis Washings was police chief then, and he was working the case and I, he talked to me about it, you know, and he gave me details and I reported on it. And um, um, I think this case had jarred the memory of my editor at that time. I was still pretty green here. And that was Craig Trionello. And Craig had said, hey, you know what? This sounds kind of like a string of, of cases that you know David Watson and um, Greg Tuttle had reported on. And he started sending me some of the old archive stuff. And that's what started me looking into this. And um, I could see some of the stops that they ran into difficulty in getting information because a lot of it was from the FBI because they were the ones that would take over these cases. That's kind of how it began for me. Um, that case there, and I believe that, you know, she, she wasn't found until 2006 is what started my interest in looking at that. Um, and people would talk to me. It was really something. Um, I had some people talk to me, you know, off the record, but they still would, would talk to me. There was uh, fear at that time. I, re I remember one, one guy I talked to, one man, uh, his sister had went missing. And um, he had met me out at the library in White Swan. He asked me to come out there and meet him there. So we had a discussion about that case. And um, he had told me, you know, basically how he was um, on a pool lake playing pool at a bar and his sister was there. And I just can remember uh, how he felt 
when he was explaining this to me where he had turned around and she was talking to somebody and then he's, you know, playing the tournament and he's with his friends on the team and then he turns around and she's gone. And I guess, you know, immediately you don't think, well, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's a problem. Maybe she's around here somewhere. Then he turns around later and wasn't not able to find her later in the evening. And then boom, she's one of the ones that were on the list. Um, so I, I think that uh, he was upset about the way it was being handled from an investigatory standpoint. Um, I don't think there were strong enough follow-ups with him. And uh, this is what he was telling me at that point. He was critical of both tribal and federal law enforcement. And I had a sense that, that he was afraid to say much more about it, but he did let me know that you know, his reluctance to talk to me was because of his uh, previous um, critical comments and concerns about the lack of any effort by law enforcement to find out what had happened to his sister. Um, Phil, real quick, I just want to uh, explain my relationship to somebody you'd mentioned, which is Davis Washing, Yellow Wash. Um, since people will see my name and see his, um, so uh, you had mentioned in about the 2005 timeframe he was involved with the case, and um, he's been a long time uh, law enforcement involvement for the Yakima Nation, um, and he uh, still, you know, looks into cases. The last time that I believe that I heard him publicly speak about that was at a meeting on the Yakima Nation tribe with. Um, actually the president's uh, task force on uh, missing and murdered indigenous people uh, called Lady Justice, Operation Lady Justice had traveled here um, this past winter. Um, mm -hmm. So he's, um, you know, he's still advocating and speaking um, for a, a particular family. Um, I'm trying to remember who covered that. Some, somebody at Yakima Herald obviously has covered that case. Um, it's still in the system right now um, mm -hmm. for that woman and the family, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, in rural areas, that's going to happen. We're going to be bringing up different people that are, you know, might be related. They, we, we might know them. We might have played, I don't know, softball with them, basketball. We might have ran with them. Um, so I just wanted to explain that real quick <laughs> for our audience. So, so now get it back. Yeah. I don't know if I completely answered your question. I know I kind of went off on remembering <laughs> my, my days down here on the ground. So I may have gotten away from it. So redirect um, if you need to yeah you get to see what it's like on the other side of it huh rather than asking <laughs> yeah. you asking the questions um well i mean you know you did cover a part of it because we talked about you know i wanted you to tell me about how long you've been aware and so you know you wanted to talk about how it had been in the background and that you've had these interactions um, which I think is important for people to hear and to know. It's not, are you going to just zoom in and plop and be able to like pen in hand and write the story out and, you know, boom, get it to your editor? Or is this something for our community and what's worked is to have relationships to show that you're in there? I think Robin has brought this point up about, um, you know, living within the community and reporting on it. The fact that you're a, a non-Native reporter that lives on the Yakima Reservation that has covered some of our cases um, is unique. 
how many um, journalism, journalists are out there that have done that, especially lacking that educational experience. Um, you didn't get that. You didn't grow that. You had to build that. Um, and I think, you know, we want to talk about this aspect of awareness, where it came from with you. What is, what did that look like? And I think you covered it. You told us about that. Um, I think the only other point, I guess, was um, if there's a, let's say there's a journalist student that calls you up and says, hey, Phil, I heard you on this podcast. I really, I don't know how to talk to a tribal leader. I want to cover these stories. That's what I want to do. I want to bring justice to these families. I grew up in the Yakima Valley or I grew up in this other rural area. Uh, what would I do? What would you say to them? I, I would encourage them to, and, and I don't know how realistic this might be for, for, you know, most reporters who may want to report on a reservation, but live off. I think it's really important to become part of that community, you know, and that's what I would tell them that they would, and it would have to be sincere. You couldn't just do it just to get something that they would have to try to reach out probably to elders there to start to understand the culture that it would be this, that it's, it's, it's more than just dropping in and, and grabbing a store and leaving. If you want to do good work, you have to, um, open yourself enough, I think, to be able to, to have a good communication and exchange of culture and understanding and um, find, you know, things within the culture that you can embrace because it's going to help you be more of a person and you'll be able to do a better job. You know, so I just believe, I guess to say it in short is, is that you have to be open enough to, to, to learn and grow and to be able to care about that community, about, you know, whatever reservation you're trying to cover that community, you have to care about them as a whole to be able to really invest yourself enough to do a good job and to completely understand the complexities yeah, thank you. I don't want to give the wrong tone, but like, you know, when I ended on to understand the complexities, it's because, you know, historically, I mean, we have, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, across the Americas, right? And we have, we have this, this, uh, you know, we have the federal government, we have all the, you know, statehood and, and everything that has kind of come, you know, through uh, settlement, right? And it's just created this network of what we call jurisdictions, right, on, on so many levels of services and, and everything that it's created a very complex picture, I guess. And to, to be able to see it from a perspective, a Native American perspective, you have to allow yourself to, I guess, go into that Realm that area and look at it from that perspective, and you can't do that without you know building relationships and becoming trustworthy, you know, with within within an indigenous culture, so you can see it from inside, you know. And I've had, you know, 
I, I know that I've reported on on things that were controversial, political, and this and that, and I've kind of gotten in the hot seat sometimes with some of the tribal leaders, and we've, you know, but I've always gone back and said, hey, look, you know, and, and been willing to say, you know, um, let's take another look at this. Um, but first and foremost, I'll say that the membership, there's a lot of incredible people and many of the stories that I've been able to write that were in depth that provided a lot of context came from the membership that would contact me and say, hey, Phil, you know what? I've got a concern here and could you come look at this? Those stories that, that wind up out there that are of significance and they're of importance, you know, I want to credit the, the Yakima Nation membership, the people, because they bring them to me. They're their stories, you know, and I just try to tell them, you know, and there's, and, and I've been lucky and grateful that over, over the years, I've been able to build some relationships where that environment has been created, where that could happen where somebody could feel comfortable enough to reach out to me. And, 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 you know, in some cases I get provided documents, you know, and I protect him as a confidential source. And that's really, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Some of this information that I've been given and trusted with is incredible. So you kind of answered the question I was going to ask, which was <laughs> how does being a part of the community inform your job? But I also just wanted to make a comment on that. I think you are hitting, again, as I said before, you are hitting the nail on the head when it comes to protecting the story and having the integrity of the story because just culturally, stories are paramount to, or to us, you know, and it's not just the Yakima people, but um, to tribal people in general. Stories explain everything to us. That's how we relate to a lot of our experiences and a lot of our culture is just through a story. And um, if you have a story to tell, we will listen, you know, because that's just, I feel at least that's how I was raised to be is when a story is being told, you listen to it. And so the other part, I guess, that would be a part of my question would be, this is a little off of what we had, but I kind of want to know what your community response has been, because I know you were part of various communities um, for one, uh, your affiliation with the Yakima Nation or, you know, your uh, being a part of the community is, you know, uh, living here, learning about things, but also uh, apart from the Yakima Nation, what has your community responses been to the stories that you report? Um, have they been like really good? Do people show concern? Because we don't, all we see are comments on Facebook. And so it's kind of like, it gets, it gets us really riled up. So I just want to know kind of like what community responses have you gotten? There, there are a mix. I get a, a mix of responses. Um, it's interesting. Just take a second to back up a little bit. Um, and I think it depends on what it is that I'm covering. I don't recall really getting you know, negative comments. I know I get a lot of questions and interest anytime it, it deals with law enforcement or anytime it deals with public safety. Um, I've had, a, you know, I get a lot of, you know, hey, thank you for, for, for bringing that out. Um, um, that's a major concern. Um, so I do get a lot of positive responses on those types of stories. Sometimes when I've, you know, in the past when I've dabbled in politics, 
sometimes that, you know, I get a mix of responses. It depends on, you know, where the, where the folks uh, position on the issue is sometimes, you know, it's, you didn't really need to write about that. Um, or other times, thanks for shedding light. Or other times, is you know you got it wrong because there's another piece of it you don't see. Um, but discussion is usually pretty good. One thing I will say though, just just to go beyond our immediate community, is that there are some stories that we've written and we've done in the past on you know tribal issues and and on culture, you know the importance of culture and stuff like that. And beyond the tribe, I do know that there's a strong um, interest in those stories people are fascinated by them you know um you know and i've always says hey you know we've got you know in the lower valley there's the yakima reservation and i've always kind of felt strongly about you know these are indigenous people that here we are today i'll say 2020 and they they're not reclaiming anything. They've upheld their traditional values, their culture from day one. They're, they're still who they are. And they're a very important, vital part of this land because I believe that Yakima's hold the truth of this land culturally. I mean, I've I've been blessed. I've been um, taken up into the in the up into the closed section of the reservation. Some of the elders told me about some of the medicines and things like that that grow up there, and some of the stuff that is is still intact. It's just fascinating that there's so much that's still here, and if the Yakima Nation wasn't here to protect that it, with development and everything, it would be gone. And so that's how I feel is that the Yakima Nation, they have the truth of the, of the lay of this land since day one. And outside communities, I think, need to understand that and, and should respect that and, you know, value it. There come a time where that will be. And I don't mean to get off topic. I'm sorry. I know I kind of did, but... But I, I, I just feel that there are folks out there beyond the, the boundaries of the reservation, if you will, that, that do have a sincere interest and in, that do understand that it is important. Though there's a lot they don't know, I think there's a lot of curiosity. And I think that's a piece of it that is worth noting. I have some follow-up questions, or actually a follow-up question for you in regards to that. I'd be really curious to know what types of self um, or biases that you held yourself about indigenous communities in general that you had to overcome and then eventually found your way into some of our spaces where you were invited, you know, to the closed areas or to the longhouse or, you know, with your past experiences. Um, because as somebody who's lived on the reservation um, until 2011 and then leaving to the Midwest and to the East Coast, I had a lot of questions um, that were presented to me like, you know, do you guys still live in teepees? Um, you know, what are some of the 
the issues, you know, that are faced, some people didn't even know reservations existed, um, you know, and then to get into some of these stereotypes and biases that they've had, I'd just be really curious to hear your, your journey and, and growth in overcoming those, because I feel like Yakima County is, is still very mixed, conservative, are primarily conservative, and there's still a lot of unknown things that um, Yakima, you know, Yakima mainstream population, you know, doesn't understand about us. You know, it's in, in some ways there's so much, you know, um, everyday living in mainstream society that you know it's, you know the. Yakima Nation has embraced it, right? Technology, stuff like that, that we utilize in our everyday life. But, um, but culturally, I think there is a lot of misunderstandings. And at times, you know, when I when I first moved out here, um, I was very part of me was very interested in Yakima Nation culture, um, and. Another part of me, though, didn't know why it was so hard at times to to have conversations about things. And I felt, you know, I, I guess on one part, I felt like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a non-native. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much ousted, right? And I kind of thought that before even trying to uh, report, you know, just as being part of the community. And, and I'll say this, um, that, you know, my, the mother of my two youngest children, she's Nespers. So I had been around, um, you know, Native family. And, um, but I still had this, I think it's almost like a reverse prejudice in my mind that, you know, I didn't really fully belong you know, because I'm white. Um, and so I kind of think I had to get past that. And, and then, you know, as I did and open up and, and, and start having discussions and building friendships, um, I had to also understand, you know, why some things aren't talked about. And I had to understand, you know, that it's not to be taken personal, but to understand the culture enough to, to realize that as opposed to just thinking, oh, you know, Yakimas are secretive because of this or that, or they're doing stuff that's not right. And, and there is some of that perception from the outside. And, and, and those are things that I, I had to overcome. Um, so I, I don't know if that's enough, but I, you know, but it's just kind of interesting because, you know, as I started to meet people and talk to them, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't, you know, want to say, you know, that I'm, I'm free from any prejudice or anything like that, but I just, I, I never really had felt prejudice against native peoples. And um, I, I think I was maybe a little different in the fact that I was, you know, always kind of eager to, to learn and to really kind of, you know, feel um, what, what natives feel. I mean, you go into a longhouse, man, and it's just, to me, it's incredible what, what, what's going on. The, you know, the song, the drums, and it's just, it's like, wow, I, 
you know, th this is amazing to be a part of this, you know, and for me growing up as a child, I always felt cultureless, you know, stripped like I really never had anything. And then I, you know, I, I meet my kid's mom and then I go to a reservation and I visit um, up at the uh, near Lapway there. And then, you know, then I wind up moving over here and it was like, just some of it was something to feel, something to grab onto, you know? So it's been fascinating. Thank you, Phil, for sharing with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, in leading up to the, our dialogue with you, you know, we also mentioned the role of local media, which has not always been, you know, produced in a positive manner of Native people. In some cases, we know that it's been exploitive with their stories, headlines, and reduced imagination. And I think today this discussion with you as a representative from media is a breakthrough for us. And, and it's also was a breakthrough for me to see the story as Emily had you know, mentioned, uh, just to see the story and, and how it was put in the newspaper. I think it just, like she said, validated to, to me personally that, uh, that the community was paying attention. You were paying attention to what was going on. And still we know that there's more that still needs to happen with media. But in our case, you know, we're four Yakima women coming together to share, you know, our own personal experiences and the stories that we have as well by bringing, inviting in individuals like you to come and have conversation with us. It's like inviting you to come have a meal with us or something like that. But, um, you know, this time of social distancing, we're not able to do that. And um, so uh, we know that as a reporter as well, we want to leave some time for you. If you have any questions of us, to please feel free to ask questions. Oh. I just thought he's, I know he's going to be curious, so let's go. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is an awesome effort, what you guys are doing, and you're carrying this. Um, and, and it's really been something to watch this movement. Um, and it just seems like the Yakima Nation is really, or this, this group of you, and, and I've seen, you know, a lot of the, the, the um, work that's being done for awareness and the, the groups or the gatherings that you guys have had up until, you know, COVID. Um, and even now you're continuing this podcast. It's all amazing. But what I'm curious about is, is beyond, you know, educating the public as much as you can and beyond, you know, continuing to keep awareness, that's very important, you know, to keep this top of mind and keep people uh, um, talking about it. Um, what, what is the next step beyond that? And I'm going to ask that, and it's stuff that I should be asking as a reporter, or I should be you know, maybe teaming with Tammy Ayer has done a lot of this recent coverage on this about, you know, how, how do we begin to start pressing federal authorities to bring about some change? Because there's definitely communication pro problems. There's, um, there's, you know, legislation that is in the works and that's fantastic, but okay, so once that legislation is in place, how do we assure that it's gonna happen? You know, get the commitment here that we need to to follow through and bring about change because I feel like 
there's a lot that does happen out here and there's an attitude that it falls under the radar. So yeah, it's a, a haven for right. behaviors. Right. And, and that's because there's a lack of presence, police presence, lack of resources here to begin to deter that and to say, hey, we're not going to allow this anymore. So my, I guess my question is, is you know, what are the plans moving forward to bring some change that has actual teeth in it? Right. Well, I do know that uh, we have some some work that's been done. So in case in the case of Emily, she's just completed um, a a story. A story on war cry, and maybe she can talk about that, and I can just share some of the work that I've been doing. We can all chime in on the work that we've been doing, and you heard some of it before the podcast began. I'm going to defer to Emily for now, and then I'll come back and just share some of the work that I've been doing as well. I mean, I think the aspect about the next step is to cover these cases and really support the work that's been done so far with um, Yakima Herald Republic's team um, and adding, adding that voice. So a lot of the people don't have this visual voice of some of the families of uh, missing and murdered uh, indigenous people. Um, and you know, so we really have to think about well, what are we gonna say in our own words and how are we gonna do that? And how are we gonna do that when we have so much historical trauma that comes up with that. When we have current cases that I feel very emotional about, um, you know, the case that you had talked about earlier, uh, we're not, you know, naming names here just because we didn't prep the families, but you know, he, that person was one of my close friends and a coworker. And I just, I felt myself like just, you know, but I'm here to do a job. I'm here to bring forward these stories. I'm here to dialogue about it. And I thought, um, when Robin and I had talked about this, there's a, a different way that we're able to talk about these cases and these things with people that we've grown up with, with people that we saw at the library. Yet we continue to see out in the community, there's this aspect, this huge element of silence, um, both regarding our own cases and others. Um, so the uh, case study that Patsy had mentioned is a war cry. It just is recently published on the Evergreen State College. Um, case studies, as they're written, they're written as this big, huge set of questions that don't actually have a final answer. Um, and for a lot of our Native people, I brought up a lot of things. I've compared the Holocaust to it. So I was looking and trying to think about these different examples of, of silence. And I, I looked at these examples of, of a psychologist that talked about him getting off the train to a concentration camp and, and being stripped of everything, Viktor Frankl. And watching, he said, not only did it hurt to be stripped of everything, but it hurt to also see my fellow Jewish people walking by silent. And so when he talked about that, he said it was this aspect of they were just ignoring me. He said, but then two months later, I was in a line shuffling by, trying to survive, doing everything I could, undernourished, underfed, psychologically traumatized, seeing horrible things. And I saw fellow Jewish people getting off the train and I was shifting through unmoved. So they talk about this process and this reaction. And as a Yakima people, I have to take into account 
that we're in different ranges and different places of that process. Um, I, I think we really need to bring that up. We need, we really need to address that as we're able to. And in some cases, like a team, you know, I played a lot of sports, so I know you run as well, Phil. So, and box, um, sometime your team's going to have to handle a little bit of that. <laughs> sometimes it's going to have to be an easier day. Um, and sometimes you're going to have to, you know, really carry the ball there. Um, and so that's kind of my view of it. You know, we, we can take some little tiny wins, like maybe, um, you know, obviously reporting cases, getting that information out there, continuing to validate stories, which I think is important and asking this of ourselves, what are we being quiet and silent about? What are the cases or the information that we have? Um, and what are these pleas from the family? You know, Alfreda herself has says that there's three people that have not come forward with the last time that they had saw her uh, brother, Tony. Still not come forward to law enforcement. Um, so I think, I think there's some, some movable steps here. I think that we will find that out continuously through this process. Yeah. And, and, oh, and thank you for the question, Phil. I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, just the fact that you brought up the, the, the huge silence, and I would agree with that, that there is a huge silence uh, that exists amongst families and, and including myself for a period of time. Um, because the way this, for me personally, the way this was handled was very, uh, to me, was very unprofessional as a family member coming from law enforcement, um, it created a lot of anger in me. And so that anger is something that I've had to work through uh, for myself. And, and every member of my family is at a different place as well. And I've talked about that here with um, our team here, that everyone is at a different space. And so after I came, you know, got through the anger uh, and it didn't happen uh, in a year, it took time uh, and I found myself that I felt like I, I really had a responsibility to speak out about it, um, but more, you know, legislatively uh, and as an advocate for families and the family voices and have been able to do that uh, with the state legislature and helping to get legislation passed and taking some of our young students with me so that they could be a part of that process and listen to it and working with the young people, uh, particularly with our little swan dancers. Um, you know, we have families who've come together. We've talked about this with our young girls. The parents have talked about this issue as well. So we're, you know, we're a longhouse family talking about this with one another. And then also you know, teaching our young girls about their history of who they are, learning to introduce themselves in our language you know, teaching some of the language, uh, sharing some of our, you know, our history, the social dances and the history of our social dances. And so, you know, just helping our young people to be able to know that, uh, know who they are, but also know that they have support with their families around them, their parents, their aunties, their uncles, their grandparents, the longhouse, um, you know, the land that you talked about, you know, helping them to relate with the land as well. And so that's something that, you know, the federal government doesn't necessarily understand that relationship that we have. And so it's just moving beyond these boundaries. And um, when we begin this discussion, I talked about the very negative um, viewpoint that I had on media because I was doing a paper years ago in 
um, it's been like 20 years and all, what I remember was very negative about the Yakima people. And so just, we wanna continue uh, working on changing that, but it means education. And for me, I've been involved in educating educators and, and still involved with you know, state education initiatives. And we're, we've been involved as well with um, you know, some, of the, some of the federal issues with the lady justice issues. So it's, it's a constant education that needs to go on. And um, I, I bring back, I think my childhood and the type of experiences that I had as a young child growing up and that young girls and women, native women aren't viewed as human. We're not viewed as human, we're subhuman. And so we're having to overcome all of that. And, and you've seen that, uh, I think, more pronounced in media and uh, the imagery around sports of Native people in general, characters, uh, logos, etc. So we're all subhuman. And so that, you know, that's a massive undertaking that we have here. And so we're sharing this in this podcast not only with ourselves, but also sharing it with you know, the region and, and, and internationally as well, because like all indigenous people around the world, we face similar situations and circumstances. So this isn't just happening here on our reservation. We know that it's happening in Canada. We know that this is happening in Mexico as well with the indigenous people there too. So um, I just want to say I really appreciate your, your coming on and being so open with us. And I know that Robin and Lucy also have some shares, some things they'd like to share too. I just, um, I also just want to reiterate what um, Patsy and Emily were just sharing in regards to the silence. I, I think our work right now is, is exactly what we're doing is we're trying to bring community awareness and education in general in a way that we can use to our advantage. Um, everybody here is doing this voluntarily. We're, you know, doing this with our own personal, you know, money that we've, you know, put into as far as like the website goes or even just, you know, purchasing small things here and there. Um, because I think where we all come from is, is very different spaces, but at the same time, we all realize that that silence can no longer be tolerated. Um, you know, so I, for myself, maybe it's a small thing, but I feel like for us to even start having these conversations about how dysfunctional our systems can be, or even how our family systems can be, and then to have that resonate with somebody who's listening and provoke some questions, like, why did we accept you know, that that person had a drinking problem and didn't do anything about it? Or why did we accept, you know, that they were homeless and didn't try to invite them in? You know, so when when my family members and my friends are coming to me and, and saying, you know, like, hey, I really thought about this after listening to, you know, one of the episodes, for me, that's, that's a win. Um, I understand legislation is, is important, but I also know, um, speaking for myself, it can be difficult to keep up on those things when we have so many moving parts in our community. You know, we're not just dealing with the impact of COVID, but we're still dealing with how do we grieve for people, you know, whose 
still under investigation are how do we, you know, move in some of these spaces when we can't get together and, you know, hold memorials the way that we traditionally would. Um, you know, so I think it, like my overall take home is just to, you know, share like having this conversation with you is breaking a barrier that we probably wouldn't have had a discussion like you and Emily did, you know, in, in 2000 and having it, you know, come to this point. So I, I think, um, you know, overall, if we can just have people sit and think about it, you know, for me, that, that, that is the work. As Emily had discussed, so Lucy and I, and then Emily and I had had several conversations about where we would like something like this to go. And a lot of it is rooted in, we want answers is the first thing. Uh, the second is we definitely want to validate the stories of the family. We want them to, you know, we may not be able to give them any kind of closure or anything like that, but we want to, you know, start that healing. And I think, you know, the more I thought about it, uh, we want to create that culture of healing because we definitely, you know, our culture and our people have been so inundated with trauma and historical trauma and things like that. We wanna be able to start that movement of healing, which means, you know, I may be um, releasing uh, feelings or stories that they were not been able to, to be told, you know, to anybody, you know, so sometimes, you know, we reflect back in our episodes and we're like, I wonder if that's the first time this guest had ever been able to talk to other Yakimas about their experiences or talk to somebody outside of their family or their immediate you know, circle about what's going on and express these things and being, be able to be validated in what we were saying, like, no, you're not crazy. You know, you're not alone. You know, this is, you know, we just want to be able to get your story out there so that you can ask, you know, everybody, you know, what they know or what, what it is that you're wanting to get from them. We acknowledge because a lot of us, uh, at least Patsy, Lucy and I have been kind of involved more in the mental health part of, you know, working for our nation or with our nation. And I know that um, Emily has worked a lot with natural resources and things like that, as well as healing historically, like literally going back to Fort Simcoe, like healing from the source. And again, it just reinforces this culture of healing. So we want to be able to uh, create resources we want to be able to create access to resources that help heal. So that means like mental health, um, education, physical health, uh, self-esteem. You know, we see a lot of our young girls uh, and young boys have like low self-esteem just because of the institutions that they're involved in. You know, going to school, you know, like, oh, I know this school doesn't like natives or, you know, I know this, this and this. Uh, lessons about natives and talk about how we were conquered, you know, things like that. So all of these things that bring down an, a native child's self-esteem sometimes will often inform their, you know, future decisions. And this just is going back to, you know, stuff that Lucy and I and even Patsy and I and <laughs> Emily and I have talked to just individually. Uh, we're always trying to find the source of where we can start healing. And I think that's the biggest thing for us is uh, starting that healing process, make it normal. Because I know some people don't like the term self-care. They don't like these certain terms because it's new. Uh, and it's not something that we've done. A lot of the times, you know, I, I love my Yakima culture, uh, but sometimes it can seem a little harsh, but that's, that's not the intent. But I know without um, 
an elder there to interpret it for you. Sometimes these ceremonies can seem really intense or really kind of harsh, but it's all, you know, based in healing. So I think one of the biggest things, again, is to make self-care normal. And I think that'll go into my final question. Uh, we've asked this of ourselves before too, is like, what do we do for self-care? Like, how can we normalize that and, you know, share it with our family? But also for you, Phil, I know that you go through um, a lot of reporting on some pretty heavy things and we've had a lot of heavy discussion. Uh, what are some of the things that you do for self-care? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I sometimes, you know, like I was noting earlier, I run. Um, so there's, there's, there are the physical things I do to try to give me the, the emotional or mental break. I sometimes have to kind of step back and change my focus for a while, you know, on, on what I am reporting. You know, I take a break. Um, and maybe I need to look a little bit more at, <laughs> look at that, what I, what am I doing? For self-care. I think sometimes I get going so much that I I lose sight of the fact that I probably should, you know, set a little more time to to see if I am doing well enough in that area for me so I can be better for others moving forward. I'm not sure I always do that, to be honest. I don't either. I need to do that too. <laughs> so we just have to like acknowledge like, hey, I'm not, I'm not doing self-care. Maybe I should do it. I think that's always a good first step, but um, yeah. I always appreciate my team and our guests because, you know, when I'm having a hard week or something, they're like, take it easy on yourself, you know, <laughs> they'll tell me, like, be, what is, I can't remember. Lucy says, be kind to yourself. And I like that a lot. So, yeah, so be kind to yourself when you need yeah. to help. <laughs> I will work on that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I appreciate you asking me to come on and, and, and share some of my perspective and experience. Um, yeah, it's certainly um, important what you're doing and just, just to even be asked to participate is huge for me. So thank you. Um, can I just ask a, a technical question? What do you identify as in terms of ethnicity? Did I hear you say you identify as white or what is your... Yeah, I don't know. Some I've, I've been asked, what are you, you know? <laughs> by folks before and it's funny but I mean most probably you know my last name Italian Farolito so I, I think that's probably the biggest piece of my ethnicity I guess I would say what you four here we're talking today what you're fostering and something that I take away is that um, that piece of it and sometimes I didn't realize, or I don't stop to think about how strong that is, but it is the awareness piece of it. And, and the piece that, hey, you know what, it's okay to talk about. It. And it's okay to get down to really what's going on inside you moving forward so that we, we have this discussion that creates a, a better environment that we can start to come to solutions. And I didn't really completely see that until you guys began talking on those lines here just towards the end of this. And that's, that's really important. And I, th I think that's, I mean, it, I, I guess if I had another question is this, can you gauge or say how much more now, the dis how much the discussion has grown? A lot. <laughs> it's grown a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've, seems like more people are, are open to discuss it. Uh, in the beginning, 
it was really hard to get people to even comment on some of the things that we we're doing. And so we would, of course, have to start with our family and just ask them, hey, did you happen to watch this? And what did you think? And like Lucy had shared, it's like sometimes our family hadn't even thought of having these discussions. Uh, and then now, at least with some of the the families that have, you know, volunteered to be on, we've gotten some more comment and feedback. And we know, too, that that, you know, as you talked about, it's just a fear and a lot of it is um, even just shyness, you know, like, I don't know if this is my place to say something. And we're always inviting the public um, tribal members or international people or national people anywhere, um, you know, just weigh in on what it is that we're talking about. You know, we want to hear from you. Well, we have other individuals that will be sharing as well. Um, and we share, like Robin said, with our own families so that they're aware and they're coming online as well. But other individuals who've been doing similar work around, particularly around the Northwest, while we're talking about the Yaki Reservation area, we're also including the, the Northwest because, um, you know, we have tribal members that live you know, all over the region here. And so some of the, one of the cases uh, we happen to have uh, George Lee talk about his mother um, in the Seattle area, but we also have individuals that are doing some of the work around data. I don't know if you got a chance to see the one uh, that we had more recently uh, from the Seattle Indian Health Board on, you know, the lack of data for Native women who are missing. And, and so there are other individuals out there that are wanting to come on. And over the years, I've been asked by students to share, you know, our family story, and, and I've done that with students. And just last weekend, I got a student who confirmed to come on because she said in doing this story, she didn't realize that she had a family member that had been missing. And as she got into this story, you know, she began to learn more just about her own family as well. And so it's, again, building that awareness like you talked about just within families too. So now we're just going to continue doing the work and Robin is the one that keeps track of our data uh, for us and lets us know the responses and I'm not and the women all do because I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> so they keep track of the data. I, I'm the older one here and I'm not into all of that. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm learning as well. I just want to say that with these young women. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've known about this and talked in a, a national element of this since I was 18. Um, I did not talk about it publicly at that point. The first time I publicly was quoted about MMIW cases was, you know, a few years ago with the Yakima Herald, um, Tammy Ayer story. And I weighed that considerably. I remember the exact moment when I decided to go on the record. Um, I remember the room I was at. I remember the city I was in. I remember what I stared at as I was typing the message. Because culturally, we have kind of this, these different orders. And we brought this up when you talked about the longhouse and different elements. We have protocols that are unwritten. Um, it's not usual for me to speak ahead of families. It's not usual for me to speak ahead of um, police or detectives or even our tribal leaders. Um, but at the same time, I had to think about, am I going to let these women, um, and the story that I gave a quote for was about the proposed uh, bill for Washington State um, by um, Representative Mossbrecher. 
um, talking about addressing MMIW um, within the state of Washington. And um, I thought, am I going to let them be alone? Am I going to have their families think that they're out there and nobody cares? And so I made the decision that I'm going to go on the record for them. Um, and so I would say that it grows, but there's things that come in waves. So, and then it's like the process starts all, all over again. Like maybe I figure out the jurisdiction, the cases, okay, this is coming up, this bill is coming up, but then there's another set of case or there's another family and set of questions. And so it's kind of like a wave. I would say it comes in a wave. I wouldn't say that there's a linear process to this. I would say there's a cyclical um, process to this really. And I, I anticipate being in that and having these learning moments throughout the entire thing. Uh, with the main goal of being solving more cases, protecting our our women and our people, um, something that we've been doing and trying to do since time immemorial. Uh, the only way that I can really begin it is by taking it back to the beginning of everybody who's in this space with me um, has influenced me. So, if it wouldn't, if it wasn't for Patsy talking about these concepts of historical and intergenerational trauma and having that awareness, I wouldn't have recognized that this is a traumatic event. Um, and then I can remember last year seeing Emily present at one of our VRP, or I should say our Victims Resource um, Conference. And when she began to talk about how this isn't a new issue. This has been going on since 1855. And for me as a Yakima indigenous person, that, that blew my mind to even think like this issue is, is, has been ongoing. Um, so to be able to talk about those things and then to look at and research, you know, the papers that have been out online, internet, like you were saying earlier, there's limited information that's available to us. Um, you know, you can see through archives that our people have consistently been exploited, have been treated, you know, poorly by the US government from 1855 on to now. And, you know, I know that some attention was brought to it, like when we had an attorney general visit, but it seemed more like lip service. Um, you know, so like speaking of waves, it, it, there's this awareness and then it stops. So it's kind of hard, you know, to say at a community level how easy it is, you know, as far as it's grown. But I can say for myself on a personal note, a part of the reason why I wanted to do this is because my youngest child is transgender and they're also a person of color. Um, so as a youth, <clears throat> knowing that my kid is trans, they have the highest rates of either committing suicide or getting assaulted or killed. Um, you know, and that's just a part of our society. And I couldn't fathom thinking about that ever happening and my child end up missing and to not know or to be murdered and to not have justice done. Um, for myself to even admit that publicly, I had to have a conversation with my youngest, um, you know, to get permission because I I'm technically outing them 
but they told me that it was okay, you know, to talk about it. Um, so for me in this space to be able to say those things publicly amongst the team and then also knowing that this will be public is huge for me. So, you know, what I hope eventually is like, I know that there are also things happening within our homes and within our communities, you know, that we still sometimes have difficulty talking about, you know, like pronouns, what does it mean, you know, if you're a lesbian, gay or trans, you know, let's, let's kind of talk about some of those things too, and, and normalize that. Um, but like, you know, for my self growth, it's being able to say that publicly. Thank you, Lucy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of War Cry Podcast. Please join us and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. We're also on social media. You know, in talking to Phil Ferralito, we really wanted to put him a little bit on the hot seat here and find out what it is like as an Italian to report on uh, missing and murdered indigenous women in the Yakima Valley. Um, and you got to hear from some of the early cases and the wide ranging of a reporting. Um, we thank our guests again for coming and for that dedication. We also want to give a war cry to the Yakima Herald public team, including Phil Farolito. We would also like to give a war cry to uh, Yakima tribal leader, Atwai Ross Soxihai. Uh, he was mentioned earlier. Okay. I give a war cry to the four women here that have hosted this podcast and that continue to carry um, this message and awareness. And then just virtual hug, war cry out to Lucy. Thank you so much for sharing that. We also want to give a war cry out to the Two-Spirit and LGBTQ community. Um, as Lucy has explained, it's very difficult for some of the families, um, especially in rural counties and addressing all the different aspects and statistics um, that they face. And we appreciate and support our um, co-host. For credits, edited and produced by Robin Pibishi. Logo by John Alney Schellenberger with Native Anthro. Sponsored by Native Women in Action. Shirts by Nicole Pibishi, and music by Lee Sekekwaptiwa. We also have a court update. Um, as you know, we have a number of different cases in the court system at Yakima. There is a court date for Jordan Stevens on Tuesday, September 8th at 9 a.m. This is the case regarding Atwai Minthorn, 